Welcome to Filmstrip. These podcasts are spoiler-filled as we discuss the plots, characters, and themes of the films in review. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17. Welcome to Filmstrip. I'm Jay. I'm Brian. I'm Lindsay. And this is our review of Cruel Intentions, starring Sarah Michelle Gellar, Ryan Phillippe, Reese Witherspoon, Selma Blair, Louise Fletcher, Sean Patrick Thomas, Christine Baranski, and Swoozie Kurtz. Directed by Roger Cumble, released in 1999 on a budget of $10.5 million, grossed over $76 million at the box office. That is kind of wild um, to think about that this movie made that kind of money, but Hey, teenage movies, 1990s, made a lot of dough, but this one got critically like slammed. It only lost a worst remake at the Razzies to like The Haunting or something like that, if you've ever seen that. So uh, this one is one that yeah, kind of kicked around for a while, Brian, is to, you know, wanting to do Cruel Intentions. I think it's got, probably goes back to the Buffy days. Definitely goes back to the Buffy days. This was on our short list, but we didn't ever do it because we thought it would be kind of obvious, right? Yeah. It's the obvious Sarah Michelle Gellar flick pick. So we always tried to pick something different and more uh, not the mainstream. Uh, but we've always had this on the back burner, something we should do for a film strip instead of the Buffy podcast and just never got around to it. Yeah. So what about you, Lindsay? What's your background with this movie? Well, I remember watching it when it first came out in what 99, I think. So I was in high school and loved it then. Just watched it uh, tonight, actually, <laughs> not long wow. before recording uh, again to freshen up. It has not aged well. Um, <laughs> <laughs> not the movie I remember, but uh, yeah, looking forward to talking about it. I remember when this one came out as well. I did not see this in theaters. 1999, around when this came out, I was I was in between college and grad school and just I just wasn't going to movies as much anymore. I think I ended up renting this sometime, you know, later in the fall or whatever when it came out on video or whatever. Because I heard everybody talk about it, like, "Oh, you got to see it." Sarah Michelle Gellar plays this total wacko or whatever, and I was like, well, "What is this about?" And then I read that it was a teenage remake of Dangerous Liaisons, which I had seen. Um, I love the John Malkovich Glenn Close uh, movie. If you've ever seen that, which is itself an adaptation of another you know, French movie from the fifties based on a book from the 1700s. So it's, it's right up there with uh, 10 things I hate about you as being one of the oldest pieces of source material we've ever pulled a movie <laughs> from. But I, I remember hearing that. I was like, Oh, I like dangerous liaisons. I thought that was, it was good. I didn't, when I first saw uh, dangerous liaisons, I don't know that I totally got all of it because I was kind of young, but I watched it again. And then I watched that for this review as well. In addition to cruel intentions, just to see, What's the symmetry exactly? And oddly enough, they're not that far apart. It's a little more salaciousness in this one, maybe. But for the time in uh, you know pre-revolutionary France, uh, some of that stuff was was very risque and things. Well, what about you, Brian? In terms of background with this, uh, I, this came out when I was in college, and I think that I'm the same with you. We didn't we didn't go see it in the theater, but we did rent it when it came out. And the reason I, I think was probably a couple years later. And the reason is because we started watching Buffy the Vampire Slayer. So we were immediate fans and we were starting to watch the movies that Sarah Michelle Gellar had been in. And so that's really what got me into it. And I just remember watching this and, and my wife and I, my girlfriend at the time, we were both just like, holy crap, what a difference in character yeah. Sarah Michelle Gellar is playing here. And from anything that we had seen before, right? I mean, she'd go on to do more risque stuff like this um, afterwards. But, but until then, she played like goody two-shoe characters and <laughs> It was interesting, yes. Yeah, I think when she got to doing movies, she desperately didn't want to play Buffy in any way. We talked about that on I Know What You Did Last Summer last year, where she, she definitely wanted to not play the heroin girl um, or a girl on heroin uh, at that point. But so she you know, she went for the other, the other role there in that movie. And then this one is very much playing against type of Buffy, um, which so, I, yeah. I find interesting. Yeah, Lizzie, you're an actress. So what's that like, though, when you... When you do something and then you don't want to do that again. Yeah. Uh, and I was going to say it's difficult to do for a lot of film actors and actresses, I think, to make that leap from doing something that's very heroic or very um, almost innocent to 
especially if you're younger when you start, then you want to break out and show the world that you're not actually a child anymore. You're an adult and you can do adult things. And it's a classic trope amongst child actors to try to do that. And it doesn't always work. Sarah Michelle Gellar managed to do it. And she did it well. And even from an acting perspective, you want to challenge your own range. You want to get out of your own comfort zone. And I think every actor on some level really wants to play a villain at some point because there's so much fun to play and explore. Um, so so she did she did a great job with this one. You know, as far as the movie goes, it's a weird movie, but her, you know, she did she did what she needed to do to break out of of the shell that she had been cast in. And Ryan Phillippe playing an obnoxious jerk just seems like on the nose. I mean, from what I understand is he's actually a decent person in real life, but he just for years, he just played like the asshole boyfriend. Like that was kind of his thing. Cause he, I think what you did last summer. Yeah. Played the Mm -hmm. asshole boyfriend. Exactly. I think it's all in his face and the way he emotes in his Mm -hmm. face. He just can look so intense and so completely bored with you and just done. You know, he just dismisses you with a look. And I think that's fun. I mean, you know, it's neat to watch a movie like this where, you see a lot of young Hollywood from the time sort of get minted. You know, Sean Patrick Thomas mm-hmm. and Selma Blair. And you've got all these these people in this Reese Witherspoon, who was a thing and had been around for years at that point, uh, but was definitely coming into her own as an actress as well. And then you surround them with these good character actresses like Louise Fletcher and uh, Christine Baranski and Swoozy Kurtz. And, you know, they, they have a lot of fun. There's a lot of room to play in that area. And this was clearly something like the director was into, y'all. Like, we'll talk about the sequels and ill-fated TV show and all this other stuff when we get through the movie tonight. But this was something that was a passion project for this dude. This is kind of, he wanted to be the cruel intentions guy. He doesn't mind being known for that, even though he's directed other stuff. But, yeah, it's, it's neat to go back and see these things. And then now you watch movies and you see a lot of young tv stars or network stars that get into a movie and you're like oh i remember when you were on this show and now you're doing this movie you know so it's like watching the you know the riverdale kids all get cast into movies and stuff now or whatever um it's it's just it's the cycle it's hollywood it's just how how things go but it's fun to get back into this one it had been a long time since i've seen this honestly like i think i watched it I don't know, probably back when we were doing The Art of Slaying, Brian, because it was one of those things we were considering. I thought, you know, I hadn't seen that in a while. We throw it on, watched it, and I hadn't seen it in years. Um, but I can attest that when I told my wife we were doing this, she was like, oh, finally something I want to watch with you. So see, we, you know, we broke through <laughs> on that. So Yeah, I haven't watched it in a long time either. In fact, I remember I bought it for The Art of Slaying, and it was still sealed when I opened <laughs> it to watch it for this. So yes, nice. it's been a while. <laughs> So this was a date night for you too, was it, Jay? As as is often the joke of the horrible things I make her watch for the uh, the show here, <laughs> at least something uh, past the at least first pass muster. We'll we'll talk about impressions as we get through it. I guess I should do a plot summary um, to try to tell right. <laughs> what happens here. I'm gonna try to keep this high level. We can get into it as we go. <clears throat> Two step-siblings, Catherine and Sebastian, who get off on wanton hedonism and destruction of other people, make a bet to deflower the new school headmaster's daughter, Annette, who once wrote an op-ed about saving herself for marriage. Catherine also uses Sebastian to wreck the uh, reputation of Cecile, a new student who Catherine's ex-lover left her for. Problem is, Sebastian actually falls for Annette and comes to resent Catherine's manipulations and deceptions, uh, uh, which he keeps a very lurid journal of. Sebastian and Annette begin a love affair, but when Catherine threatens to ruin Sebastian's reputation as a playboy, he goes to call it off with Annette in a cruel manner. Sebastian comes to find out that Annette wasn't the target of Catherine's ploy at all, but he was. Realizing his mistake, Sebastian begs for her forgiveness and gives her his journal as an attempt to show her he has changed and loves her. Before Annette is able to confess her love for Sebastian, he's killed in a car wreck or in a car accident, and saves her life in the process. Sebastian and Annette pledge their love for one another as he's dying. And at Sebastian's funeral, Annette uses the contents of the journal to out Catherine in one of the greatest burn book uh, moments of all time to the world and drives off in Sebastian's car, cranking Bittersweet Symphony by the Verve as credits roll. And that's about the straight line through on this movie. We can get into a lot of the details, and there certainly are a lot of details 
But I threw in that music cue there at the end specifically because I think that's the one thing I maybe remembered most from this movie other than Sarah Michelle Gellar chewing the scenery up with her evilness was the slamming late 90s complaint rock soundtrack. <laughs> that is mm-hmm. this. I mean, I think I owned every CD these bands put out for several years there, man. This was a killer soundtrack. It's an awesome soundtrack, and it contains my favorite Counting Crows song ever on it, Colorblind, yes. which is used so well in the movie, too. Um, but just a, a phenomenal soundtrack. I bought the soundtrack. It was recently reissued on vinyl, and I bought it uh, right away, and it's just absolutely fantastic. So just a great soundtrack. You got Amy Mann on here. You got Marcy Playground, Blur, Fatboy Slim. I mean, come on. It's it. You even got a little sky in there. I mean, come on. It's there's a little <laughs> bit of all of it from that. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. It's perfect. And to watch it now after not having seen it in so long, it's incredibly nostalgic to hear all of that music that you listened to decades ago. Which is weird because really it was only like five years ago, so it was when the nineties was. <laughs> yeah, but, but it feels like a long time ago. Right? Yeah, you were in high school though when this came out. So this is like the soundtrack of your your high school. Yeah, this movie was made for me. Um, <laughs> really weird preteen Fifty Shades of Grey movie. <laughs> <laughs> I've never heard it called that, but that is awesome. I can't take credit for that one, but <laughs> but I will repeat it here. <laughs> that is, that's, that's outstanding. So let's talk about our characters. I think that's kind of a good way to look at this movie. And let's start with Sebastian, because I, I want to get to Catherine in a second. We talked about Ryan Philippi and kind of playing the a-hole boyfriend and this thing. I, I like the twist on it here is that he is... He is, whether he intended to or not, is totally doing a riff off of what Malkovich does in Dangerous Liaisons of the playboy who does not care what other people say about him. He is going to run through as many women as he possibly can, evidenced by the fact that he's using lines on his therapist when we meet him that he used on the therapist's daughter, a great cameo by Tara Reid, by the way, and then picks up some rando girl in the mall where the therapy session is to go to lunch and supposedly beds her as well as he throws her you know, phone number away later on. What a, what an intro to a character. Yeah. It's almost campy the way he plays it. And I don't hate it. I think he has some really, he does a great job as an actor in playing with the campiness of it. I know you said it was a remake. I actually did not know this until today. Um, so I learned something from you, Jay. I'll have to go back and watch that movie. Um, but knowing that now, I think he does a great job playing with the campiness. And then you have some of those really serious moments. But some like his comedic timing for a lot of moments is just perfection. It is on point. Yeah, I love the character because it's the I really don't have any feelings. I'm playing you the way I need to, like a fiddle, to get you what I want. And what I want is for you to be in the most pain possible when I'm done with you, and I have gotten my satisfaction out of everything. And he plays it so well. Um, And, yeah, his character in this movie is absolutely fantastic. It's a no, no feelings, no care in the world. I'm just going to do what I want to get what I want, and uh, I'm going to have fun with you like a cat playing with a mouse before killing it, right? That's how he he perceives everything he does. And he gets deep into detail, too, right? I mean, he's not only going to therapy with this doctor and confessing all these problems and his addiction to sex and everything else. But in the what you find out after he leaves is that he <laughs> totally used the therapist to get to her daughter to screw the therapist. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It was all meant to piss off the therapist, and the daughter was just a, a piece in the pie that got screwed around, too. <laughs> it was it's phenomenal. Yeah. I, I love it when Dare Reed has finally called her mother as Sebastian has left the office, and it's just crying around. I'm like, he told me he loved me. And she's like trying to do the whole, as I said in my book, like she's doing the, the TV therapist <laughs> doctor thing. And I love how she calls her out on it. Like, I don't need that right now, Mom. And then when she figures out, I was like, oh, it was him. And then she has her whole episode at the mall. The cops have to take her away. And he's like, 
clearly she needs help you know and it's just yeah, he, running he, over somebody he, for no reason other than to do it he used the same lines right he yep. used the, you have such great legs i would love to photograph them yes. and that's how she knew what was going on it was just perfect y'all hit on something yeah. too though that i think is cool about this character and it's it's something that that's a a trait that they really built into this version of it is that Sebastian journals and he writes a lot. So he's very, you know, to be as manipulative as he is and maybe unfeeling, he clearly channels himself into something. And after all of it, you know, we see him later on after he, he's with Cecile and other things. He's, and he, it's kind of a played off as a joke. It's like, this is what we call a quiet time, Cecile, but he's constantly writing something down and you, I don't even know that he realizes what the purpose of that is, but he's basically putting down all the secrets he knows, all the bad stuff he's done so that one day that might actually be a tool he can use again. Yeah. I never, I don't know. He, I never really thought of it like that. I feel like he is just such a classic, like brooding nineties, you know, character that, all the ladies want. I I remember thinking he was attractive. I was mistaken. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I was in high school. I didn't know anything. Then. I, yeah, I, um, <laughs> yeah, it was different. Um, it was a different time. But I remember seeing that journal when you first finally see it open up and what it looks like and his handwriting and the detail that he put in there. And I remember in my head thinking, "That's a beautiful journal. I should start journaling." And then, you know, I never did because it's, who does that? I mean, some people do that. But, like, the way that it was laid out, and I remember thinking, like, I will never be able to journal as beautifully as his is laid out like that. But he really had he really had some layers. Yeah, I, people have given, used to give me journals all the time. Like, here, you like to write things down, and they are stacked neatly on a book. So there's not a pen mark on them. <laughs> I don't write things yeah. down. I just, I, it's more in my head. And that's why I have a podcast and I don't write blogs. It's because no, I'd rather just say it. So that, or think about it. That's uh, kind yeah. of my thing, but it's a neat way to watch him process through all that mm-hmm. stuff. What I think is funny. Um, the thought that came to my mind watching this, of course, many, many moons later is that looking at that journal thinking, you know, he's writing down all of his escapades in this journal, right? It kind of reminds me of the scene in American Pie when he pulls out the big book of <laughs> secrets. The book of love. <laughs> with, T- with Tara Reid. Oh, yeah. So maybe he wrote that, right? I <laughs> forgot about that. I haven't seen that movie since oh, around the same time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, we're talking about the same. Yeah, we're talking about the same time frame. Though, so yep. Absolutely. Yeah, that, that is, I brought, I would have never connected that until you said that. That's That's <laughs> awesome. But yeah, we, yeah, we do though. That when we see the journal on the on the seat cover while he's driving in the car, he's got that cool classic Jag, and he's you know slinging it around. And uh, I mean, it just it lets you kind of see where Sebastian's coming from. And then we meet our other main character, or at least our second lead, Catherine. And we've got to talk about Sarah Michelle Gellar and just the the cool performance that she lays out as this total sociopath. I mean, completely. And this is different than the Glenn Close version. The Glenn Close version is if you took the crazy lady from Fatal Attraction and put her in pre-Civil or pre-Revolutionary France, she plays the same kind of thing again. Very manipulative, but very cold. The thing about Catherine that I thought was fun was that as mean as she is, and she is incredibly mean, she comes off as just so caring and just so she's there with you. And then she does a shot, and, you know, snort of cocaine. And then, you know, she's right back into, you know, talking to you about your relationship with God and all this other stuff. And I love how she just flips from thing to thing. And it's almost like she puts on the mask and then she steps to the side to tell us, the audience, no, I'm really this horrible human being. Watch me manipulate this poor girl into complete tears. Oh, hello. Let me help you with your makeup. Hey, well, that's how master manipulators work. I don't know if you've had the misfortune of ever crossing paths with one, but oh, that's man, kind of man. how it works. Sadly, many times. <laughs> so, yeah. Now, her character's fantastic in this. And, and like you said, Jay, she she puts on a mask for everyone else. She's the uh, perfect angel student body president, the great, you know, She's there to help everyone, right? But she's got an agenda, 
right? And she's able to show you this face and then turn around and give you this face, right? Just crazy. And she does it great. I love the scenes with Cecile, especially where she's like trying to be like, oh, honey, no, that's okay. You can do that. You should just kiss him or tell him you love him. And then turn around going, what an idiot. You know? <laughs> it's, it's just fantastic. She does such a great job in this film of playing that um, just – I don't, I don't know how to describe it. Is, is it psychopathic? I don't know. Um, but she's fantastic. Well, the thing is, is that Catherine is so good at being fake. Like, she mm-hmm. really is. That you wonder who she really is underneath all the layers. And if we ever get to see it. Because the, the character it's based on is so deep in her own web of lies. You never really know what she's all about like i i wonder you know like the tears she's crying at the end is she sad because she got busted or is she legitimately sad i mean the way it plays off is that she said she got busted but you could ask and go like oh is this her like one moment of actual realizing oh i've really screwed up there is a Uh, brief moment um in her facial expression and i hope it's just sarah michelle geller being a really great actress and being able to play those nuances but there's a teeny tiny glimmer of when she's tearing up that it looks like she's doing it because she's sad that her stepbrother actually thought of her and wrote about her in the way that he did. Most of it was because she was getting busted, I feel like. But I think like deep, deep down, there was that moment where it's like she thought she had him in her web and she really didn't. And there was a realization there that was like, oh, well, crap. She also has some really strong statements in this movie, too, particularly when it comes to sex and things like that, is that she says, oh, so, you know, you, as she's talking to Sebastian, you can go and, you know, hammer half of the Manhattan and nobody says anything in the world. But if I do it, I'm all of a sudden this awful skank. And, you know, where's the fairness in that? And she's calling that out. And the thing you realize, though, is that that's just another manipulation of hers. She's just using that argument to try to get over on him again, because that's the big reveal of this movie. And it's something that honestly, when I first saw it, I don't know that I totally caught the the whole way through, even though I knew dangerous liaisons was that he was the mark the whole time. And that's what's mm-hmm. just a neat twist about this is that she's able to go along with so much of the deep lies again, because he's the one she is trying to pull it over on. And that's, and I mean, she, she offers him, the thing he can't have. And I mean, he's got everything in the world, right? Except her. And he knows, you know, she wants it. And, you know, then she lays all that cheesy stuff on him about it. And I'm like, man, that, I mean, what a bet the Jaguar for her. I mean, that I was like, wow, I, that's a, a strange deal, but yeah, sure. Go for it. If you can do it, I suppose. She couldn't drive it. <laughs> <laughs> No, just don't I think mean, she'd know how. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, that that's the best part about this whole movie is that this whole time you think that they're working together, right? But in reality, she's trying to not only get revenge on her ex who's, you know, dating this Cecile, but she wants to completely ruin uh, Sebastian, mm-hmm. right? She wants to completely ruin him because deep down inside she just doesn't really care about him. And uh, he's he's living there because their parents are married and obviously that's a great marriage (laughs) as we tell from here they get along well but um yeah she knows that he really wants her and she has no no inkling of wanting him at all and so yeah she decides to play with his play with his whole life and try and ruin it yeah and and that brings in our third lead as the person who is the complete pawn in all of this. Annette, Reese Witherspoon, all-American gal, comes in the middle here, and it, it's Catherine's excuse to, like, okay, I found the girl who says she's not going to you know, sleep with anybody before she's married, so that's going to be a challenge to stud boy over here, and that's how I'm going to Oh, no, but him. he finds the girl. Like, that was his find, right? Right. The magazine, he drops it on her. Right, yeah. but she jumps into it, though, and says, oh, oh this yeah. is perfect. 
I can totally use this to get him to do what I want you know, with Cecile and ruin it for my ex-boyfriend who left me for her. And I can also ruin the headmaster's daughter at the same time and him. It's three at once. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She's got a turkey. Hat trick. <laughs> Whatever you want to call it. Yeah. But Would she make- saw the opportunity. Yeah. What do you make of Annette, though, and particularly Reese Witherspoon, the way she plays her? I think it's interesting that Reese Witherspoon is still the same age now. She was in 1999. Um, I'm just going to throw that out there. Annette, well, Reese Witherspoon was a good casting choice for Annette for a few reasons. But I think, um, I don't know. She just, she's so wholesome looking. And that really helped. You know, she wasn't like, she didn't look like a cokehead, bulimic, sociopathic monster. She was, it, she was a total 180 from, from Sarah Michelle Geller. Like, total 180. And I think, I mean, that was clearly intentional. We have to remember, too, at the time that this movie came out, that was a big deal. Uh, you had superstars like Britney Spears and Jessica Simpson and all them coming out and saying that they were going to wait until they were married to have sex and this and that. And it was kind of a big deal among teens at the time. Um, so the character fit the time perfectly mm-hmm. uh, for what it was. And I think that she did a great job. She um, comes on as just this smart down to earth person who has all but the best intentions and then starts falling for this kick this guy who she's already been warned not to uh get engaged with right don't don't let him manipulate you she's given a heads up and yet still she finds a way to get drawn in by him right Mm -hmm. and of course obviously uh the quarterback greg uh, has something to do with that too um in helping sebastian kind of loosen that feeling of that he's manipulating her but even when she's given the go-ahead to kind of engage because he's not as bad as his reputation is, he shows his reputation a couple times. Look at the swimming pool scene. Like, he completely manipulates her in that one, mm-hmm. and she calls him on it. So it's like, how you're not seeing this, you know? That's the thing I liked about her was, in, in addition to being that down-home, wholesome kind of gal, she's also incredibly confident in herself and where she's going and where her lines are and... Yeah, not impressed. And I mean, honestly, it reminded me of several friends of mine in college that I knew that I I wasn't romantically involved with, but just friends with them who they were the kind of gals that I saw like every player guy try to go after. And they bat and she they batted uh, them away the way that uh, she did him initially. Thankfully, none of them ever really felt hook, line and sinker for the Sebastians of the world. But we all knew those, right? Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah. definitely. I think. I mean, I think she enjoyed it, too. Yes, she was confident. She knew exactly who she was. But she has that line where she said, well, usually people praise me for it. And he was like, well, people are, you know, they don't know themselves. <laughs> they lie a lot. So, yeah, I mean, he calls her out. Like, he insults yeah, her. And that was the first time anyone had ever even, you know, thought about that or that's the first time she's ever really heard it from anyone because she's always gotten these pats on the back for it Mm -hmm. and i think that challenged her and ultimately led to you know where she ended up i think it's no small thing either too i mean her and ryan Phillippe were married at this point and they obviously have a ton of chemistry together you're going to cast people you want to make sure they've got chemistry that they had it in real life for a number of years and even though their marriage didn't work out that you know, by both of them's accounts that they still you know talk to each other they've raised their kids together they don't hate each other you know, they were just really young when they got married and so it didn't work but at the time I mean, you can see it when they're together like it's in the background like you can really see them together because they yeah. just have I don't know, they have an easiness with each other. And that doesn't always come off with couples when they work with each other on screen or on things. Like sometimes it can be really awkward and tension. But some of the best stories in Hollywood are when the two romantic leads absolutely hate each other. And, you know, they're able to channel that, like, you know, Terms of Endearment, Pretty Woman. And there's tons of movies that are like that where they don't like each other, but they can make it work. And in this case, eh, they they actually lived together and were a thing. And then you have movies like Geely, 
that you know <laughs> Dear God. wow i didn't think we'd be bringing that one it up didn't today, work at all but big guns. <laughs> they were married in that movie so yeah. Yeah, it doesn't it doesn't always work but i i agree with you jay i think their chemistry in this one was was really good what's neat to watch annette's character do as she evolves throughout this thing and realizes that she's been manipulated and things like that but still sort of makes her own choices is the the is there that end scene she has with Catherine in the bathroom where she lays all that stuff on Catherine about like well when i'm having a hard time i turn to jesus and he just gets me there and it's a total riff off the first thing we see Catherine do to cecile and it doesn't dawn on Catherine as to like how did you know to use my line on me? And that when you three minutes later, you realize like, Oh, I read the book about you because your stepbrother totally nailed you for that in, in his uh, journal, as it were. And I thought that was a great twist of the knife there at the end by her. It was so great. And in that bathroom scene, it's an interesting reaction I mean, for me as a viewer, because you've watched this entire movie where you intimately know both of these characters and you don't realize this is the first time they're meeting until it's the first time they're meeting. Mm-hmm. And then it's like, oh, oh, right. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Here we go. So spo- Spoiler alert. That was invented for this movie. That's not part of the original story. That's not part of Dangerous Liaisons. Those characters never meet in, in that story. So I like that change. Yeah. to this because she needed to have that moment. I think, I think that character had earned that after everything she had gone through. I agree. I- what I wanted to ask y'all was the, when Sebastian and her do finally get together and I mean, fully get together and things like that. Is it because he has fallen in love with her or is he oh, yeah. still playing the game? Okay. Tell me why. Oh, you can tell he's been falling in love the whole time and he's even called out on it to a couple times. And, um, I think that he has fully given himself to her at this point, and he's doing it because not because of the bat, mm. right? He's doing it because the timing was right, and they both felt it, right? Had it been just for the bat, I think he, he would have had less emotion there. But that was that was strong, passionate session that they had there, right? They were into each other. They were having. They were they were making love. They weren't fucking, right? Mm-hmm. So. To me, uh, he was completely in love with her at that point. And even so, when he finally comes to collect on, uh, well, he doesn't even come to collect on the debt. He tells her that, uh, tells Catherine that the deed is done and she comes to give him the bet and he says, nah, I'm not interested right now. You know, and that's when she calls him out that he's, he's changed and then manipulates him to think that he needs to go back to his own self or his reputation's down the toilet, right? And you can tell too when he goes to tell Annette that it was all a game. It's hard for him to do that. And he's crying while doing it. She totally calls him out that he's, he's not telling her what he means. He's just trying to hurt her. Um, and she wants to know why. So, yeah, I think he's totally fallen for her at that point. Yeah. And he keeps crying, too. Yeah. And the point that he fell for her is the point is when he went to the train station to get her as she was leaving. That's when you know that he has fallen head over heels for her. And that's why the whole lead up to that with the the song and everything in there is perfect. It it was done just perfectly. Yeah, that was just like a classic shot. And again, yeah, it was the song and then the hymn at the top of the escalator. Very just like uh, dagger in the heart moment. It was beautiful. He came to get her at just the right moment or whatever. I think it would make make a good argument there the thing that i i push back a little bit on and maybe it's the performance is i i watched this movie this time and something hit me that maybe never had before i think george lucas was a fan of this because so much (laughs) of the ryan Philippi, i'm in love with you so much that i can't stand it looks so much like Hayden Christensen laying that stuff on Natalie Portman in Attack of the Clones. Oh, how dare you? <laughs> no, Ew. it's the same. No, but you're right, because I didn't think that specifically, but I definitely thought Hayden Christensen at one point, and uh, yeah, now I can't unthink that. Yeah. Thanks, Jay. 
Well, I mean, Hayden Christensen's about a foot taller than Philippi, so that, that should help somewhat. And he was acting against a wall of green screen, so he didn't even see it half of what he was talking about. But it is, it's some of the same kind of overwrought emotion stuff. And I, I'm really thinking back, not so much the train station, because I think y'all right. I think at that point, he was so head over heels for her, he went out of his way to try to find her where she was. But it's when it, she and he are sitting in the park or whatever, and he tries to kiss her, and they start making out, and then she pushes him away, and he like has this whole like freak out about it like what what is this you can't know love until you feel it oh yeah he's still playing at yeah that, point. that was yeah. yeah that was not sincere yeah, he's still playing at that point yeah and that is very like attack of the clones hallmark card love story stuff going on there it's it's <laughs> it's it's, it's yeah. incredibly cheesy uh but if it's because if if the point of that is that it seems so cheesy because it is so fake because it is fake when they do have the, the actual moment at the train station and then everything after there's so much real to that. That felt very much like two people who were in love. Yeah, it totally switched from you can tell everything leading up to that point was completely part of the game. Just in the actions, the way he reacted, the things that he said, all of that were part of the game. And then when it when he goes to confront her friend and ask where she went and where she is and runs that train station to be there when she gets there that's when it all flips and everything from then on is is shown from a side of someone who's fallen in love and isn't playing the game yeah and honestly i think they do a good job with the music dictating how the audience is supposed to feel in that moment too Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah, it's a good example of a soundtrack and particularly a pop soundtrack driving the narrative along with everything else going on i mean there's there's a real art to good music placement in a movie I mean, it, it really works. Nick and I talked about it in December on St. Elmo's Fire. That song is not anything about what that movie is about. It was written about a parent mm-hmm. and an Olympian. You know, but the, when they <laughs> drop it in that movie, it's in the perfect moments. Because David Foster writes incredible pop music. And it just it, it gets you to the right emotional place. And the same with all the songs in this. And particularly, this is like Gen X preppy white kid angst in a movie. I mean, that's, that's what this movie could be subtitled. And as a matter of fact, that may have been the clapperboard, like, you know, when they were trying to hide what they were actually shooting or whatever was, was Gen X preppy white kid angst. And it, it's a soundtrack that brings that about. And what, I mean, that era of music in particular was known for a lot of things. One of the things I really enjoyed about the soundtrack were all the female rock songs, you know, like the, the lead singers, because that's something that's kind of forgotten about the post grunge era is there were a lot of girl bands and a lot of girl singers that put out some killer music that time. And it was just as hard-edged and just as emotive as anything the dudes were doing, too. And I thought that that was a good mix and balance of things on the soundtrack to drive that narrative along again. Yeah. I would argue that a lot of it was better than what the dudes were doing. Yeah, true that. Yeah. Especially for the era. Yeah. That's it's not mm-hmm. not untrue. I can, I can tell you that. Look, I can j- still jam to Veruca Salt. That's a killer, killer band. Uh, let's talk about Cecile here, Selma Blair, and all her comedic <sighs> stupidity. Um, I mean, <laughs> it's it's one thing to say to describe a character and dismiss it as like airhead, and I don't know that that totally encapsulates Cecile. And I think I, I've, I've picked up on something this time that it's not so much that she's dumb; she is mm-hmm. incredibly naive, incredibly yes. sheltered, incredibly inexperienced in anything in the world and then she gets put with these two monsters it's amazing <laughs> she's even speaking sentences at the end of this movie do you know what though it it almost her character arc was that was exactly what she needed to kind of find a little bit of herself and less of her mom and her mom's influence on her because she just owned it at a certain point. I mean, after she and Sebastian got together and she was just like prude, like when he left her. It's like, okay, I I think she'll be fine. I think and then, you know, at the very end she's handing out copies of of his journal, you know, proud of it, knowing full well that she's in parts of it and, you know, I she just owns it. And I think she's totally fine with that. I think she's been sheltered enough her entire life to just be like, this is fine. I'm good with this. It's the old Catholic girls yes. yep. analogy, right? 
brought up your whole even in the uniform. Yeah, seriously, brought up your whole life thinking that uh, you know, knowing nothing about sex. Because let me tell you, they didn't teach it until way later in Catholic schools what that even was. It was up to your parents to tell you that, and uh, Catholic parents not so much on the on the telling thing, right? And then getting out in the real world, college, right? And all of a sudden. Holy shit. <laughs> what a different world it is. And so she is completely naive to everything, right? Completely naive to what sex is, what she probably has never even kissed a guy at this point. And then she starts falling for <laughs> her music teacher um, who, you know, I think he was being paid by Catherine to kind of deflower her. <laughs> And that doesn't go very well. Um, but he starts having feelings for her and this and that is an awesome thing. But then when Ryan Phillippe, when Ryan Phillippe or, or Sebastian gets a hold of her and actually convinces her to allow him to do things to her that she's never had done before, all of a sudden light switch on. She's experiencing a whole new world. She likes it and she's going for more. Well, it starts, though, with Sarah Michelle Gellar. I mean, Sarah Michelle Gellar is yeah. giving her everything from makeup tips to here's how to make out. And, I mean, that was a scene <laughs> yeah. that got, you know, that was all over that MTV. Lives in it Thank was, you. yeah, it was so close up. <laughs> like, yeah, there was just <laughs> Sarah Michelle Gellar liquid. to this day on the anniversary of the release of that movie posts that video <laughs> clip picture every year. Her and Selma Blair are very good friends. Yes, they are. And they they talk about it every year around that time, and it's hilarious. And you know what? They should. Why not? But yeah, I didn't. It exactly. was it was just so close up, and I did not remember. I mean, I knew that it happened, but I was like, wow, wow. There's you can really see all the detail there, can't you? <laughs> well, let's put that in context though, too. In 1999, that was a huge deal a huge yeah. taboo oh, thing i don't think i don't think it was taboo but i think boys had to change their shorts afterwards <laughs> i oh, don't yeah. think it was something that you saw often not on not television in not in movies yeah. Mm -mm. yeah yeah not in movies definitely not in mainstream movies with your you know with people that you knew from other right. things it's you just did I just see Buffy make out with that dark-headed chick? I mean, yeah. that's that was the reaction people had. What was the rating of this, by the way? Is this it was PG an R. This, a, this, R. Was, this yeah. was an R. This was oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. I well, I didn't know. Just... To be anything else. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay, that yeah. makes sense. Yeah, it was definitely an R. The the thing that was uh, that everyone was pretty clear about. Um, and Reese Witherspoon had done nudity at that point. Sarah Michelle Gellar doesn't do it. and was like, no, nah, I'm not doing that. And even Philippi was like, ah, I'll do the backside. But was that him for real or was it a double though? That's that's him, according to him, and all, and according to Reese too, that was him. So and she would know. And so good for them. <laughs> Seriously, <laughs> he was working out a lot. Okay, but what's funny is you look at him and you think like, God, he's this huge person. He's only like five nine, right? That just shows you how short Reese Witherspoon is. She's barely five feet tall like she's a very short is person. he really five nine i thought he was shorter than that. I, well that's what he's listed i thought as, we so. okay yeah we, we looked, looked that up there and I, I know what you did last summer because he was so much shorter and he had to be filmed a, a certain way yeah he's supposed to be a quarterback <laughs> yeah. well that's because that's because freddie prince is legitimately a tall guy he's six three yeah like, he's a tall mm. kid but another but, um, 90s staple there you go, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, well, I mean, it's almost you wonder like why he wasn't walking in the background, but he wasn't as big a deal as these other people at that time. Like he, yeah, he was, yeah. this, this was breaking yeah. out. But you know, I mean, this is a huge year for Philippi. He had, I know she did a summary. This, he had, you know, a lot of other things coming on. Reached with a spoon again. Had been in a lot of stuff, but that was the thing that the director talked about. He said I had to be real careful about the, you know, the sex and all that stuff and how undressed I could have these people. He said because I knew the kind of language we had. I knew the stuff we were talking about in here. That this the MPAA was going to murder this, and yeah. it, and even then they NC seventeen. Yeah, they still had to cut it a lot because again, they're making a commercial property here. They're trying to get this out. To to an audience and even though it's made for teenagers um i mean obviously it was made for older teenagers and college students and then you'd sneak your younger siblings in or just hope that the ticket counter didn't <laughs> notice right and so and the thing made money i mean that's i mean clearly like you saw the box office who cares if it gets panned i mean it's it's made its budget back seven times over and it's the kind of movie that 
would sell itself just on reputation from scenes like we just talked about with Selma Blair and uh, Seth, uh, Sarah Michelle Gellar. What I think is, is interesting about the way that their relationship goes and the way Catherine uses her is that it's only at the very end Cecile realizes that she is getting used in all of this when she finally reads the the burn book as it were but she does get the sweet smile of revenge like she she doesn't become a mean person herself which i i kind of like that even though she's not as innocent as she was when we started the movie she's still enough to go like and here you go sweetie goodbye (laughs) yes yeah no i like it too uh i think her character really blossoms in this in this film as it goes um, you, you have the great scene with her mom and, uh, what was the music teacher's name? I can't ever oh, that's, remember. Oh, that's, that's, uh, Ronald is his character's Ronald, name, but it's Sean, yes, it's Sean Patrick yes. Thomas is the actor. Yeah. So Ronald is an African American, uh, teaching a, a white, rich white girl how to play, uh, bass <laughs> is it a cello? Cello. 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 cello yeah playing a cello and um you know mom gets manipulated into thinking that he's in love with her and sending her all these love letters that Catherine and sebastian have been writing for him and uh she gets upset because he's a black guy on a white daughter and back then you know the rich people didn't like that so much well, oh the best and part is when she, best, she's like i pulled yes. you off the street and he's like i, I live on 59 live on 59 in park <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then she says I specifically uh, wrote that it, down it was so good she says yeah. i we gave money to colin powell <laughs> oh well i guess you put me in my place <laughs> yeah nobody's <laughs> leaving like and that was leaving. Leaving. yeah i, I thought such a great line great. it was yeah it, yeah I, but you know that's commentary again. It's not. It's not in the source material. But I love that they pulled that into here because again, young upcoming actor. Let's make a statement about this because mm-hmm. there's all these super rich, you know, people that feel like I donate to you know UNICEF and that makes me okay and to be totally racist. And no, it doesn't. Yeah. And that's what he's calling mm-hmm. out, which I appreciated and thought it was it was a good bit of uh, humor and break in you know all the sexcapades and manipulation going on that we have just this aside of five minutes of Christine Baranski, who's an incredible comedic actress, pulling that off. And he just gives it right back to her the whole time. Yeah, Mm -hmm. it was his, his character was great. That was maybe, I don't know if it was my favorite scene in the film, but it was up there probably in the top five. He just made it. I, I really just love the, I live in, I live on 59 in park. Like I'm yeah. going to Juilliard. This is yeah. you didn't take you me, me off the, the street. <laughs> I'm not from I'm not from Harlem. You know, I'm not Harry. a yeah. peasant. I don't. But she's wearing this, and I have to digress for just a minute to just talk about the costuming because she's wearing like your classic pink tweed Chanel suit, and uh, and Catherine's wardrobe was epic sebastian's wardrobe was fine for the 90s it was top notch but you know it's men's fashion in the 90s was so so but i mean and cecile was dressed really well too i mean to follow her whole character arc because it was a little bit awkward and you see her get older through her costuming too so that was super interesting for me to see yeah, she goes from wearing like a t-shirt and looking like a little kid all yeah, yeah. to a young woman and someone who, and then she's in her uniform and she's, but she's kind of wearing it cool. You know, she's not totally buttoned up and everything. Yeah. And so yeah, you're right. You're right to call that out though, Lindsay too, because that's so much of the, the story of this because of when the source material is set is the costuming is gorgeous and period pieces and stuff. Well, how do you do that in a nineties movie and not make it feel dated i mean we're talking about something that at this point is over 20 years old and all it does is just make me remember how you know preppy kids dressed when i was in school i mean that's what everyone dressed like well a classic chanel pink tweed suit never goes out of style jay you just have to get it (laughs) tailored once in a while good to know note so (laughs) don't have one in my closet right now but okay (laughs) i still got a flannel 
Yeah. I have yeah. lots of flannels, yeah. and I'm wearing like a pumpkin spice T-shirt right now. So clearly, yeah. I'm the pinnacle of fashion at the moment. <laughs> but, but, that, but that's that's the thing is that the way that these people are dressed, and this is how you know when costuming works in a movie, at least for me, is that you recognize that like, oh yes, that dress is those the way these people are dressed says something about who they are and where they're going, or whatever. But it also doesn't take me out of the movie and like that's all I'm thinking about. It's they're appropriate for the character and the arc that they're playing. Yes. Yep. That's what makes it cool to watch. So the I, I we got to talk about the scenes that Sebastian and Catherine have together, but the, particularly the one where she totally emasculates him and convinces him he's got to break up with Annette at this point. I thought our two actors really went for it there and really sold the the emotions and the anger and the just total absolute hatred they have for one another while still you know, playing along or at least Sebastian, you can tell he cannot stand this woman, but he also somewhere in his ego realizes she's right. I've got to go and do this. Well, not only that, but that one line that she says that uses what she knows to be true against him in the worst best way was it'll ruin your reputation but it will destroy hers and you have that moment and i think collectively everyone watching and both um sebastian and Catherine know she's right like it will destroy hers because she's you know She's the wait till you fall in love girl. She had a whole expose in Vogue or whatever magazine it was. And, um, you know, that's it was like, oh, well, now he has to do it. Yeah, very good scene. Um, You see Catherine throwing herself at him because he won the bet, right? And he's denying her, which completely pisses her off Mm because nobody denies Catherine, and especially after she's been fooling around with Ronald mm-hmm. in her bedroom before he came in, uh, now she's not going to get laid at all, and she's pissed about that. But she does a great job of convincing him that um, he has to do this not only for him, uh, but because if he doesn't, she's going to ruin her. And so he better do it for both of them. And all along, we find out that he, she's playing him because she wants to ruin them both. Mm-hmm. Right. That's her goal. And just a an absolutely great scene. Great acting. Uh, I, I just can't say enough about the two of them together in all of their scenes. They're just so well done. She is just so good at pouring it on and getting to him throughout this whole film. The scene where she's kind of like on top of him and whispering to him about things and playing around with him and then just gets up and says, down boy. <laughs> And walks away, and he's like, oh, come on, you know? Uh, Just, she does a great job throughout this of just being that complete, like, tease and bitch, and, oh, it's really good. Yeah, but she plays it off for her ends, and that's what she realized, like, ruining Annette is just a side benefit. She could care less. She's already ruined Cecile, so if, you know, ex-boyfriend wants her well, she's definitely, you know, not fresh material if that's what he cared about or whatever so she's gotten that out of it and now her biggest you know uh pelt to put on the wall is i've ruined the playboy that i cannot stand i've pushed him to the end and i i mean until the very end happens there there's a way you could have ended this movie where Catherine wins and everybody's destroyed and it's like well, I mean, that would be like a real downbeat or whatever, but it's also incredibly dramatically fulfilling in, in one way, too. Because you, I mean, look, let's face it, guys, evil wins a lot in life, <laughs> and it sucks, but you see it all the time. And it, I don't know, if, if you were trying to make a franchise or something, or make a TV show or whatever, that's how you got to end the first season is she mm-hmm. wins and everybody's, you know, wrought at the end of it. Here's a fun here's a fun alternative uh, twist. Let me take you guys to Crazy Town for a minute. What if what if Annette was the master manipulator in this whole thing? Mind. Uh, yeah, right? <laughs> wow. Think about that. She ends up with a car, right? Which is let's be honest. Like that's what everybody wanted. That's what all the bets were on. 
Um, you know, she she got everything she wanted pretty much in the end. She found love. It didn't last long, but she found it. But or maybe she didn't. I don't know. Maybe it was just for the car. But or maybe maybe there was some ulterior motive against these two hooligans. I don't know. <laughs> what if though? What if Annette was the master manipulator? So maybe Aunt Nurse Ratchet put her up to it. And that's because she knew of Sebastian and, of course, knew Catherine. That wow, that you know what? That's an incredible alternative theory. I yeah, I could see that. I feel some fan fiction coming on. That that would be some interesting fanfic. Throw that on Reddit. See what happens. That 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 could. It's probably already there. (laughs) Right, for sure. (laughs) Well, but let's talk about though the end and and how things go because. Catherine is not satisfied, obviously. So she calls Ronald up and is like, he hit me. And, you know, because she, she knows she can manipulate this poor fool into going after Sebastian. And my question to y'all is like, does she think he's going to kill him or just beat him up? Because now she wants to see him like physically humiliated too. Because what happens is they get in the fight. He gets, uh, Annette tries to intervene, gets pushed in the road in front of a cab, and he knocks her out of the, Sebastian knocks her out of the way, and the slowest breaking cab ever finally hits him. But I don't think Ronald went there to kill him. Maybe just a rough. No, just to beat him up. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't even. Well, he wasn't expecting to see him. I I guess I'm a little confused. Was Ronald leaving or going to see Catherine at their meetup? He had left her at that point because she had called him. Right. So he went to see her. Okay. Okay. He went to find Sebastian and confront him. Sure. Yeah, I yeah, I don't think that there was anything particularly malicious outside of, you know, the brutish, boyish, like, I'm going to beat you up situation. And then I think he was just angry in general and happened to cross paths at the wrong time. And if I may, I have seen the movie Elf. Perhaps you two are familiar with it. Mm. Will Ferrell got hit by a cab in that movie at about the same speed, and he was fine. I just don't think that that accident would have killed uh, Sebastian. I had to suspend my disbelief on that one. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask y'all. I didn't think that worked as well. Because in the book and in the original movie, it's a duel with swords. So it's much more life or death. That would have been cool in this well, movie. That, that That's what they should have done. That would have also been weird. But yeah. And I, I, and, <laughs> I would have been and, there for it. Yeah. No, and, and the director specifically said he didn't want guns. He didn't want to do that. Like that Good was, on him. No, that's yeah. that's good. I he didn't, respect He didn't that. want to do that. He didn't want stabbings. He he thought, you know, fist fight. And then it just, it, you're in New York. Traffic. Like it. It, it made sense on that level. Yeah. I would have been much better if it was a they were on a bridge or something, and somehow Annette gets in the way. She almost falls. Sebastian catches her and pulls her back, but then he falls to his death or something like that. Like that, that would have. I'm with you, Lindsay. Like, of course, now Will Ferrell is literally a foot and a half taller than Ryan Phillippe, so he can probably absorb the blow a little bit more. <laughs> but okay, that fair. cab hit him doing maybe twelve, and yeah. I just don't. It just wasn't that great of an effect like that's one thing about this that i'm like his death scene is kind of lame if you really want to pinpoint it yeah i I, it could have been better done but it it got the point across fine like that wasn't the point wasn't really how he died just that he died and actually uh when i so a little backstory i was watching it uh, with my significant other, Jay, on a date night-ish uh, evening. And assuming that he had seen it before, you know, a few times, as had I. And he goes, yeah, I'm really excited to see this movie. I've never seen it before. And my first thought was, oh, no. <laughs> you have no idea what's about to happen. <laughs> so as the movie is opening up and we're seeing the opening credits, the first thing, and he is... No idea what this movie is about. No idea. And he looks at me in the opening credits and he goes, does someone die in this movie? And I went, wow. what? 
why would you say that? And he goes over a cemetery. Yeah, that's what he said. I never noticed that until he pointed that out. And I was like, worst opening credit scene ever. Like my eyes wanted to fall out of my head watching the stones (laughs) go by so fast. I was like, oh my god, I cannot watch this. But yes, it's it's a a nice over the cemetery thing. Yeah, very foreshadowing. Well, that's great that you picked up on that though. Yeah, because I'd never thought about that either. But me neither. What a what a great point to foreshadow that. But I'm with you though, Brian. The problem is, is it whizzes by at 100 miles an hour while the yeah. rock is oh. playing, and I can't like pay. I'm not paying attention to that. I'm paying attention to all the other things that are going on, which I guess is why it's supposed to be subtle and interesting. Uh, I can't even watch it. I, it hurt my eyes going so fast on this over and over the same colors and and all that. It's just like oh, I need something yeah. else. There was something about late 90s, early 2000s movies that were like everyone was in love with the orange and brown hue of everything. Mm. And this movie is just yeah. loaded with that. It, I mean, even the pool has an orangish, like it's green and teal, but mm-hmm. there's like a lot of orange offsetting it and stuff. Maybe it's all the blonde tan people. I don't know. But it's just kind of felt very orange in this movie. Maybe he has a Godfather thing and was just trying to slam that motif <laughs> into here, too. Who, who knows? We're at the part of the podcast where it's time to give final thoughts, recommendations, and popcorn ratings. So what are yours for Cruel Intentions? Brian. Well, I really like this movie a lot. I, I enjoyed watching it again. I watched it with my wife, and we were both laughing our asses off as we watched this. Just, just some things. And we were also just going, oh, my God, I can't believe they really said that. You know, there's a lot of things in here that you just don't say anymore in movies uh, that they were able to get away with in the nineties, which is crazy to think it's only 20 years. Right. But five, um, it was five years. Oh, I'm sorry. Five years ago. I mean, you think that, you know, (laughs) it would be okay. But anyway, uh, we had a great time watching this movie. Um, Yeah. Maybe some of the stuff doesn't hold up and that's just because of the changing times of things, but the story holds up. And I think that uh, the acting is fabulous in this movie and the story is well-written. I really liked it. So for me, I'm giving it a large popcorn. I just, I like it a lot still. Yeah. Honestly, uh, starting this podcast out and I always liked it rewatching it. I was a little unsure uh, this go around. I probably would have given it a medium popcorn. Had I not learned this evening that it was actually a remake of a remake of a remake of a French film and knowing all that and adding it to that, all of those nuances, I can absolutely see where they were going with it. And I fully appreciate it. Also, I'm with you, Brian. I, I do really appreciate the acting in this movie and the music too. So I'm going to go with a large popcorn as well. You, you both have hit on something and we've talked about it throughout the night. This movie it could just be a total cheese knockoff teen remake of adult story and you just dismiss it. I mean, those are littered throughout Hollywood. If not for the fact that you got performers all around that could carry all of it, even the smaller parts like Cecile and Ronald and, and all the character actors that are surrounding them all really bring something to the table. We didn't even talk about Joshua Jackson and you know his character and here and all of that stuff, but all the things that everyone does, they really came to play and they brought something. But then you, when you pull those three leads together, it was clear they had a good sense of what needed to be done for their characters and they played them so well. And the other part of it is, and the story is just cool. It's, I mean, manipulation stories are great drama and, and they lead to some really interesting discussions and thoughts about, could it be this? Could it be that? And I mean, you know, the Lind- I love Lindsay's alternative theory that what if the net was behind it all? I mean, yeah, it's always the innocent ones you got to worry about. Uh, that's what this movie's legacy is to me is the fact that you can watch it all these years later and you put the sensibilities aside and the, you know, the, the 2020s glasses that we watch it through now and you still can really find something to hook into and enjoy. So yeah, it's a large popcorn uh, and it doesn't deserve to be. That's the thing. This movie does not deserve that rating, but it earns it because of those actors and because of how they were able to pull it off. Now we've got to ask both of you any, any ideas about where this went, like cruel intentions Two, cruel intentions three, the failed TV show. Y'all know anything about that at all? I have seen cruel intentions Two, And it was beyond horrible beyond horrible i didn't even know there was a cruel intentions three which blows my mind that they would even bother after the debacle of two and uh, a tv show what yeah. Lindsay, what about you 
Yeah, I vaguely remember watching Cruel Intentions 2 and 3 when they came out, but I remember nothing about either of them, not the plot, not the actors, not the characters, so clearly they made an impression on me, Um, and I'm with Brian, I didn't realize it was a TV show either. Well, in Cruel Intentions 2, you have a very young Amy Adams uh, playing the Catherine role, and then a different actor playing Sebastian. It is a prequel. It is to tell you about how they first met when their parents first got together and how Sebastian came to be the playboy that he is. Must have been that shower scene. Well, here's the the thing. It was actually the pilot of a television series they were going to do. The pilot didn't get picked up, but Roger Cumble, who did the movie, said, well, I got something here. I'll just make it a movie. So they went back, they reshot a little bit more of it. They put in that shower scene. They put in all the a lot of nudity, a lot of other stuff, and they they pulled together what he said was going to be the prequel, and then the the third one was going to be everything that happened after the second one. Obviously, I don't, I've never seen the third one. I don't know what it did, but the second one was built to be a TV show, and then when that didn't happen, he said, "Screw it, we'll just make a trashy directed DVD movie with it," and they they succeeded in that. They did. I want mm-hmm. I want to tell you what they purport is that Sebastian was a good kid. Until he met Catherine and she ruined him and turned him into this just sex star maniac. And it is so ridiculous because, no, he was just a bad guy, too. And when he fell in love, it changed his way. But that's the that's the story they want you to believe. Yeah. But female villains do have a lot of interesting depth to them. I mean, since Shakespeare and Mm -hmm. Lady McScottish play. Um, they, I guess I can say it because I'm not in a theater, but Lady Macbeth. <laughs> and, yeah. and it's just, it's, it's to have a, a female villain is generally just slightly more terrifying and unnerving than having like your classic male villain. So it does add some interest to it. I mean, it's, if you're curious, I would say maybe give it a watch, but I would tell you right now, if we reviewed it at the show, it'd be a small popcorn. Like I'm not trash. that curious, but yeah. Yeah. it is it's total, not good. It is I'll take your word trash. for it. Yeah, it's total trash. But if you on paper, it sounds it like a TV good. version. Yeah. yeah, 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 exactly. And the other thing, they've thought about rebooting this as a TV series for years now. <sighs> but honestly, y'all, I don't know why they would. We've had Gossip Girl now, which I look i watched because my wife watched i was not a fan but i watched it with her and i was the whole time i'm watching it like it's like cruel intentions but you know the tv show they never could get together and it's very similar i've never seen gossip girl that's okay me neither i'm just gonna tell you it's probably skippable like if you're going through this part of your life you can miss it but this was several years ago it was something she got into so again People have heard me say for years, I've, I've drugged poor Rachel into watching so many of these awful things that we've reviewed on Filmstrip. i got to give her whatever it does. Reese Witherspoon is on Big Little Lies, though. I've never seen that, but it feels very akin to this type of situation. That is an excellent show, and everyone in it is fantastic. I do recommend that show. If you haven't okay. seen Big Little Lies, that's definitely worth a watch. Brian, That was you and you and your wife would dig that as well. That's worth looking up and watching. It's very, very well done. Um, and hits you with stuff you don't see coming, which is the, some of the best compliment I can say for something that it derives from so many other things. But I like that. I like yeah. a good curveball. Yeah, it's definitely worth it. But this was a good, fun curveball here for Valentine's Day. As we're doing fun things here on Filmstrip. Lots of cool stuff coming up. Folks, if you go to filmstrippodcast.com, you can find links to all the places where you can find this podcast. Apple, Google, Spotify, iHeartRadio, you name it, we're there. Please leave us a positive review where you can. Share the show on your social media. You can follow the show's social media at FilmstripPod on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. That's where you'll find announcements about cool things the show's got going on. If you follow us on Facebook, every now and then we'll pop on and do a Facebook Live and have on a fun guest, or maybe some of us just sitting around talking about movies, stuff we're watching, all of that. Any way you can interact with us, we appreciate your support. So until next time, for Brian and Lindsay, I'm Jay. Thank you for listening to Filmstrip. Thank you for listening to Filmstrip. You can find more episodes on our website, filmstrippodcast.com. The Filmstrip theme music is produced and performed by Frozen Lake 121. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17.